through 25. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel on the head, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So I I told Beth this, um, I don't know, uh, series of uh, uh, texts, the three kind of ways of... Sorry, man. Oh, it's all right. What do we need? Do we need more volume, less volume? Distance. Distance. All right. I don't know, this is Jesus giving us three stories about how to think about what he's doing with the parables. And I told Beth that uh, it might end up being an extended reflection on the kids' song, This Little Light of Mine, which it is, but I'll get there in a bit. Today I want to think about what Jesus is saying to us in telling parables about parables. So, the and I'm going to do the kind of verse in a weird order. I'm not going to treat the three stories uh, in the order that Jesus has presented them. I'm going to start with talking about the uh, story about the sower, then I'm going to talk about the story about the mustard seed, and then I'm going to return to this little light of mine. Uh, But the end of the section on parables makes this point, the end of the verse that we read for today, that Jesus never spoke to them, it says. It doesn't define who. Presumably it's the crowd. But the disciples are included here. They get an explanation after. But he never spoke to anyone in this part of his ministry without using parables. And I don't know, uh, I suppose that's a reasonable insight to start with on a day that is First Communion, Halloween, and Reformation Sunday. If you grew up in a place where there was some debate about whether or not Halloween was a good thing, you'll recognize what's really at stake in reading a parable or in understanding any institution or in thinking about the question of meaning. So like, I don't know, if we celebrate Halloween because we want to venerate ghosts and ghouls and goblins... Halloween's probably not such a good idea if it's a worship of things that are bad or evil. But if we understand Halloween did, like good old Martin Luther, that a day that, uh, I don't know what, Christians mock the powers of death and sin and destruction by saying that they have no hold on us, then maybe Halloween's a pretty darn good thing for a Christian to celebrate. I want to open with this little point of contact with today to emphasize that what Jesus is doing here is getting us to think about the meaning of parables, and particularly in this sermon series, the meaning of the fact that he hides the secret of his identity and the meaning of the fact that when Jesus talks, it seems at least for a while that he only talks in parables. 
Because if the point of the messianic secret is that Jesus is trying to hide his, the truth of who he is from the world, I don't know, that'd be kind of a tough thing to get behind. But if the point of it is Jesus is himself the way and the truth and the life and that Jesus is, by using parables, attempting to change us and change how the world understands him and change uh, how it is exactly that the kingdom is realized, then yeah, of course we can get behind the idea that Jesus can make the best decisions about how to communicate the mystery and the meaning of the kingdom. So that's, that's what's at stake today. Jesus is telling three little parables about why he tells parables. Now, I've been arguing in this series for, I don't know, like a little bit of a different view of the messianic secret than we normally have and a little bit of a different view of the idea of a parable. And the little bit of a different view that I've been arguing for is what? Like, um, I don't know, uh, show and not tell. The idea that a lot of times when we think about parables, we think about parables as like handy little stories that help us see something about who Jesus is. It's a little aid that helps us see a concept about Jesus. And I don't know, like I've been trying to make the point that over and over and using parables, Jesus is not only saying something about who he is, he's doing more than just telling who he is. He is usually showing the world who he is by the way that he tells a parable. And in fact, it's because I think that the reason for the messianic secret and for all this kind of zimis around uh, parables is this, that Jesus wants to ingrain deeply in our hearts this idea that it's not that we need to understand the truth about Jesus, but that we need to see Jesus himself as the truth. It's not like we need to understand some propositions or points of doctrines that describe who Jesus is. The gospel wants us to encounter Jesus as he is. It's not because we want to, I don't know, uh, have a more pure theology or a more pure understanding of propositions about Jesus, but that Jesus is inviting us both in the parables and in the mystery of the faith to encounter him directly and to be transformed by him in ways that kind of mess up or reconfigure our own understanding. So I don't know, like, for, what does that mean? Well, in our text for today, Jesus has just finished telling the parable of the sower, and now he's talking about why he talks in parables. And He'd already clued us to this a little bit, and we talked about this over the last two weeks. He's just finished saying something like, and we even talked about how this is excluded from the lectionary, that he tells parables to folks on the outside of the kingdom, and then he explains things to folks on the inside of the kingdom. So to the disciples, the people who have encountered him and who have seen him and who have been affected by him, he will explain what a parable is about. But to folks who don't know him, a parable is kind of itself like a little seed. It's something that he scatters everywhere. And it's Jesus's hope that for some people that the mystery of God will take hold in them. And Jesus explicitly calls it a mystery. Remember that thing that we talked about last week, that Jesus calls it a mystery because what? The Greek root word for that is muo, to shut your mouth. And Jesus's idea is maybe that a parable lands on someone's heart and we don't know if it's going to take hold in them or not. But for some people, for a mystery and a miracle that we'll never know, the kingdom of God grows in them and they become receptive to the character of Jesus. But that's a hard truth. And so Jesus tells these three additional parables to get us to think about that methodology, that approach, that way of thinking about why he tells stories. And the point is something like Jesus is going to say in these three little parables that he's not 
hiding things inside of parables to confuse people as much as he is kind of trying to scatter the seed. And sometimes that seed is going to break open the hardened soil of the hearts of people and take root. And for other people, it won't. For Jesus to tell a parable is quite explicitly to cast a seed. That's the important thing. And instead of being an explanation or a justification, I think that we need to think about a parable as a seed. It's a little opportunity to engage a story that lands on our hearts and we can only hope that it grows in the soil that is our soul. So, and unlike the classical reading of the parable of the sower, which really usually becomes the parable of the soil, there's this hard truth buried in how Jesus talks about the parable. And what's hard about it is two things. The first one is the less obvious one. The obvious thing, the second one, is that the seed is not going to grow in everybody. But the harder thing is that the point of the parable as being a seed that potentially grows in our heart is that there's nothing that we can do to make it grow. It will land on us and it will flourish or it will not flourish. And all we can do is maybe pay attention to the mystery as it reveals in us, as it's revealed in us, as it unfolds in us. So I've been trying to kind of make this case that what we need to do is focus on the character of the sower and the character of the seed as opposed to character of the soil. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say in these three little parables that we'll look at today, although there's a really strange punchline to all this. So the, par- the three parables for today end with this kind of caveat or punchline. This is verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. All right, so he always speaks the parable. And then when he talks to the disciples, he explains the parable. It's not clear that the crowd or the disciples even understand exactly what he's saying, but he tells them what he thinks it means. And the point here is to say something like the kingdom is not reliant on human understanding, but rather the kingdom is like a seed. It'll be revealed in its own time. It'll grow through its own logic. It will do it by being planting, by being planted. And think about planting. What is planting but a little tiny kind of hiding of something in the soil, letting it grow, and then luxuriating in the bounty? And so Jesus is going to work this theme of hiding things over and over and over by telling these three stories, two about seeds and one about lamps. So we'll leave the one about lamp for the end, and we'll talk about the one about seeds. So let's start with the second story for today. It starts in verse 26, the second parable, the parable of the sower. Jesus says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces the grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This interpretation of the sower is exactly what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. Whether the man sleeps or gets up, Jesus says, the seed grows. Man doesn't know how. His job is not to make it grow, but rather to reap it when the time is right. The point is that the man, maybe sleeping or working, should wonder at the miracle of the seed and the growth. He has a role. The sower has a role here, and it's not just in sowing. But here's the important thing. The main role for the man after he sleeps or works or whatever is what? To pull out that scythe and cut down the grain when the time is right. So I want you to hold that image of cutting down grain in your mind for just a moment. We'll return to it. Jesus tells another story, parable three, the mustard seed. 
And it kind of helps fill out the idea that I'm thinking about here and talking about here. It's the idea that, I don't know, uh, let's think about ancient Middle Eastern agricultural practices. The way that folks at that time and that place would have farmed is not uh, exactly the same as ours. So unless you were a big landowner, it was difficult to know where the borders of the place where you'd plant are. And people weren't necessarily tilling the soil in advance. So when they talk about scattering, it's a person walking around who's scattering seeds exactly as described in the parable. And then typical farmers in the region, well, what they do is after they scattered the seed, they might turn the ground over to bury it and hide it from the birds. So we talked about last week that uh, this idea that like farming and planting a seed was kind of a metaphor for death and for burial and for resurrection. The plant dies, it produces the seed, the seed is put in the soil, it, uh, it, 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 it pops up and does something beautiful and abundant. But more importantly, what Jesus is saying is that parables are something like scattering the word or the seed, waiting as it's hidden deep in the soil, and finally watching as it grows, scattering, hiding, waiting and watching as it grows. And as the parable points out, the mustard seed was the smallest of seeds, but it could grow into the biggest of plants. So Jesus says in verse 30, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, one of the things that Trey has pointed out about reading a parable or reading a story in the Bible is you kind of got to let your imagination run with it a little bit. You kind of got to sit inside the parable and see exactly where it's going and what it's telling us. And certainly one of the things inside the parable of the mustard seed is the idea of a plant that spans its branches everywhere. And this is for sure a kingdom promise. It reaches back to Old Testament traditions that talk about the kingdom of God, and particularly Israel, is a tree that spans the globe and has branches that cover everything. So like Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will take a shoot from the top of a cedar and plant it. I'll break off a tender sprig from its utmost shoots and plant it high on a lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I'll plant it. I'll produce branches and bear fruit and become splendid. The birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All of the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken to you and I will do it. The verse in Ezekiel ends, and as folks thought about the character of Israel as a tree, paralleling a claim that we've seen Jesus make repeatedly already in our series on parables, that the time for the kingdom is at hand, and there's this claim that he is going to reestablish the kingdom on earth. So we know that the parable of the mustard seed is, of course, and we all kind of did this in Sunday school. Everyone passed out a mustard seed and you held it in your hand and you wondered at how small it was and you thought about how big it would grow. And we'd see this parable as almost exclusively a parable about the power of something small and hidden to become something big. But ask yourself, let's, let's take Dr. Trey's bet for a little bit and let's say that Jesus it tells parables to plant a seed in us. And part of the parable is we're supposed to think about it and imagine it, let it bang around in our mind for a little bit and think about the other things that parables are supposed to tell us and think about the multiple meanings that might be included in a parable. And guess what? There's another meaning that is built into the parable of the mustard seed. It's not just a parable about a small thing that is hidden and has grown big. If you want to think about the parable of the mustard seed, think about kudzu. You see, the mustard seed was an incredibly invasive plant. It was like a weed. Pliny the Elder said in his Natural History 
Mustard is extremely beneficial for your health. It grows entirely wild. It is improved by being transplanted. But once you do, once it has been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it as the seed when it germinates at once. One interpreter said that we should focus on the fact that folks in this time would have seen mustard as an annoying and noxious weed that once it colonized a place would go everywhere. And the farmers that would have heard this, they may have liked to do stuff with mustard seed, various culinary preparations, I guess. But the main thing they would have thought about, it was like it was like kudzu or poison ivy. It was this plant that once it took hold would run over everything. I want you to return back to the idea of the sower who thinks about using the scythe at the time when it's right for the kingdom. And all of a sudden, these parables take on a lot different slant than, hey, isn't it amazing to see the seed grow? Or, hey, isn't it amazing, amazing for us to think about the fact that the farmer doesn't have to do anything? It's like our fishing metaphor. Jesus is telling three parables. And in parable two, he says, the character of the kingdom is a guy wielding a scythe to something that's grown. And in parable three, he says, the character of the kingdom is something like an invasive weed that spreads and goes everywhere. What is the hidden meaning that we want to hear in what Jesus is saying about the parables? Well, if you ask that question, I think we're exactly at the place where we can turn to the parable of the lamp. Best one for last. Verse 21, Jesus says to them, remember, think scythe and think invasive. Jesus said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put a lamp on its stand? Now, Jesus, besides all the other amazing things Jesus is, in my humble opinion, is a master rhetorician. Okay, so this question is awfully weird. Why is it awfully weird that Jesus says, he doesn't say, he asks a question explicitly, where do you put in a lamp? Don't you put it on a lampstand? It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that is asked for a point. And I think it's a question that is awfully weird if we read it in its context. Why? Well, we read this as if it's a story about saying, well, it would be dumb to put a lamp under a bushel or a bed. Obviously, you put a lamp on a lampstand. But think about it in its context. Jesus has just said he's explicitly hiding the mystery of the kingdom when he talks to other people. Immediately preceding this, he said, I speak in parables so that it won't be directly accessible. He immediately before this, he says, yes, when I talk to folks on the outside, I'm intentionally or strategically not making available an explanation of who I am or what I'm saying is clear. Instead, I'm hiding it in this little story and the story will germinate in some and the story will not germinate in others. And isn't that the point of the story that instead of it being about an explanation, it's an about an encounter. See, parables undoubtedly bring light. They bring light. They ought to be, I guess, in some sense, put on a lampstand. But Jesus is saying here something very different. And you got to read the Greek closely on this. But let's look at verse 22 really carefully. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Now, there's two ways of thinking about this. I think the text for today is NIV or RSV. I can't honestly remember. But the formulation suggests something like, we only hide valuable things in order to bring them to light sometime. So the classical reading of the parable is that Jesus is hiding uh, the, the idea of his identity in order to eventually put it on a lampstand. It's something like saying, I don't know, the end goal of the parable is not to hide, but to reveal. But there's a more interesting suggestion if we read this text closely. The Greek is very ambivalent. It says something like, whatever is hidden is meant that can also be read uh, more accurately with like a should be verb. 
So the question here is not just like, is Jesus hiding to only to bring or to reveal his identity to light? But I like the ESV or the ISV translation. Their translations are, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Or the ISV says, I think this is the best translation that I could find. Nothing is hidden except for the purpose of having it revealed. Nothing is secret except for the purpose of having it come to light. It's not just about the end goal. It's that Jesus is saying something like, I hide my identity for the sake of making it more apparent. I hide because I would like to reveal it in its truth. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And just to underline it, he says this kind of like almost threat about accountability. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has been given more, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken for them. What gives here? Let's ask another parable question. What is Jesus saying about the lamp? What happens if we read it in the context of him asking two rhetorical questions immediately after admitting that he is in some way hiding his identity in a parable? Well, I don't know. Here's a great rhetorical question. If you were going to ask about hiding a lamp in a lampstand, if you're going to have an argument about whether or not it's about the purpose or the means of revealing truth, if you were going to do it in the context where Jesus has already kind of admitted he hasn't quite put himself on the lampstand yet and he's been hiding things, if you're going to tell a story about hiding lamps, which are after all on fire, it seems like the hiding places you pick for the story would matter. See, Beds and baskets would block the light pretty effectively, but what is it that motivates picking beds and baskets? What is it that Jesus wants us to imagine in thinking about this parable? What is it that held ancient Middle Eastern beds and ancient Middle Eastern baskets in common? Anybody? They didn't have beds like we do. It wasn't like there was a metal frame that they had springs and a box on top of. What were the materials that both of those things were made out of? What's that? Woven hay and plant fiber. Exactly. He could have picked putting it in a jar or putting it in a cupboard, but what Jesus wants us to imagine is taking that flaming lamp and putting it under something that is made of sticks and hay. What happens in your mind when you imagine that? It starts on fire and the light becomes so much brighter than something that is just held in a teeny little lamp. What Jesus is saying is that he is hiding in order to reveal his character. What Jesus is saying is not just that he will make himself known, but he's comparing a little lamp that you might put under a bed or a basket to a kind of seed that first starts out hidden under something and all of a sudden takes over, just like the invasive weed. What do these elements have in common? A bed was more likely a woven straw or fiber or mat. A bushel or a basket was made out of things that were extremely flammable. Jesus has just said he hides his word inside a seed that is planted somewhere. And I imagine that though it's true that we want the truth to be put on a lampstand, that Jesus wants us to think just a little bit about how the way that he is communicating in parables should start things on fire. Jesus doesn't want to be a flame that is put on a lampstand. He doesn't want to be safe and at a distance and undoubtedly useful, but utterly domesticated. When he hides his word in our hearts, he may well be seeking to start a fire. 
Letting your light shine is a great concept, but we shouldn't forget what I think that Jesus is implying under each of these parables. The reason he wants to show and not tell, the reason why he wants to transform and not simply have us understand the reason that he is asking us to reap, to plant noxious weeds, to use the scythe, and honestly, the reason he is asking us to burn down the house is because the truth that he is, not the truth that he tells, not the truth that we might believe about him, but the truth that he is, is not like other truths. And once it plants itself in the soil of our heart, it will burn us down. It starts as a teeny seed deep in our hearts and it grows and it displaces the other plants and the other plans that we have for our lives. And it starts a fire in us that should change everything. It should not just end in the flicker of a teeny little olive oil fire on a lampstand somewhere in the corner of the room. But Jesus is talking about a seed or a fire that brings empires to their knees and that raises up in each of us. It's necessary the possibility that we might be cut down in the name of the kingdom. So when we say, let that little light of yours shine, we're not simply saying, hey, make apparent to the world who you are. But keep in mind the point Jesus is trying to make that the fire and the light that you shine may not stay so little. It might crowd other things out. It might burn a lot of things down. And that's the, one of the thing I want to say to the kids in communion class today, to Nikki and to Miles and to Caden and to Gabe, is that this is a big day for you, but it's a bigger day for us because communion too is a parable. And that bread and that wine are a seed. And when you eat them, you plant the kingdom in your heart. Not because of some magic, but because of a promise Jesus made to us that his body and his blood would sustain us and transform us and make us different. And we even saw today, the elders were so proud of you. Gabe said, there is not anything that you can do that can make God love you more or love you less. Caden said to be a Christian is to be a member of the full church. Nikki said that we know that Jesus is there when we were struggling and he is with us, that Miles said that communion is worship and remembrance of what he has done for us. And I want each of you to remember what you've said, the truth of what you said, and I want you to internalize it in your heart and to realize that when you take communion today, it is the seed that testifies to those things. And you all were so brave and so awesome as all our children are, and it is our hope no matter what you do, and we know you will do great things because you're all such talented kids, but it is our hope that when Whatever you do and wherever you go, that the fire of Jesus, of that belief and the king, the seed of the kingdom grows in your heart and creates an abundance that, if necessary, can tear everything down. Welcome to the table. May the seed of his body and blood not only find fertile soil in your hearts, but more importantly, may you wonder at the abundance of the growth in the soil that is you. And may you burn down every bit of dross until only his light remains. Amen.